are you are you like a, a happy winner or a sad winner? Because I, f- I find there's like people who are like really competitive when they win. They're like, oh, this is really awesome. I won. And then they want to like, you know, throw a party and like invite everyone else. Or are you more to kind of like, yeah, I showed you guys. That's a good question. <laughs> Hello there, listener, and welcome to the 33rd Roundtable episode of the Metacast by Navic. I'm your host, Nico, and today I'm joined by Florian Ziegle, Mats Dayen, and Maria Gillies. First, the topics. So first, we're going to be discussing DAOs, decentralized autonomous organizations, one uh, topic that I really like. Next, we're talking about designing long-living end games. And then finally, uh, in the remaining time, we're going to be discussing another you know casual multi-billion dollar acquisition of 2022 sony and bungie so special episode maria will be taking over the hosting for me after the introductions which is going to be fun uh and asking all the questions and i'll i'll be like semi-host semi-panelist we'll see you know how that turns out but before we dive into the topics let's do some introductions um you know matt's never been on the show um, and we have a bunch of new listeners, so I think it makes sense to do that. Maybe Florian, you can go first. Give us like a one minute breakdown of who you are, and then uh, we'll yeah, go. hey, um, I'm Florian. Um, I've been designing games for the past. I keep saying 15 years, but I think it's it's more now. They kind of keep passing these years. Um, uh, yeah, for like, you know, <laughs> most of the major publishers, and also um, done everything from AR to VR to box PC games to mobile free to play. And I'm currently working uh, with Wazder on a um, gamified social network for games players. Super. Awesome. Good to have you back, man. It's been a while, it feels. Um, all right, Matt. All right. Um, hi, everyone. My name is Matt Dion. I am a product manager by trade, currently working for EA on the mobile side. I also have experience at companies like Jam City and Pocket Gems in the past. Um, but been a product manager for a few years now and also been contributing with Novic for almost a year, um, mostly writing kind of deep dive pieces, uh, which we'll get into. Um, but very excited to be here and been listening to the podcast since the beginning. So, yeah, stoked to join you. Super cool. And Matt's pieces are amazing. So highly recommend uh, reading, reading those. And then finally, we have Maria. Hi, I'm Maria Gillis. I am a product manager at Hutch, and previously I was a product manager at Jagex, and I come from a non-gaming background. So before joining games, I used to work in fintech and just general tech consultancy. And yeah, plus one also for Matt's essays. Really cool. There we go. Cool. Well, Maria, now you have the floor. You can dive into the first topic. All right. So we're going to start with discussing, well, Matt's latest essay on decentralized autonomous organizations. So Matt, if you want to kick us off with a summary. Sure. So the genesis of this topic uh, actually came from our Novic Discord. So a a quick plug for the community there. Um, One of our community members was asking about um, how are DAOs being used in game development? And that kind of sparked my interest and kind of fell down the rabbit hole of exploring you know, what are DAOs and and how do they differ from traditional organizations? But this piece kind of examines, you know, first of all, what DAOs are and how they are being used in gaming currently. 
why they make sense for gamers and game gaming companies. Um, and also, you know, much of the attention, rightfully so, has been around play to earn gaming, play and earn gaming uh, in 2021. And that makes a lot of sense. DAOs also had a bit of a moment, but not really so much in the gaming space. And I wanted to kind of unpack what was happening within gaming with regards to DAOs and where I thought that might go in the future. So um, that was kind of the 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 thought behind it. And uh, it took me down a lot of interesting paths that I, I'm sure we'll kind of dive into here shortly. Oh, thanks. So is there a set of principles that an organization has to meet to be considered a DAO? Sure. Um, there's probably a bit of debate uh, on this topic uh, among the crypto community, but speaking generally, um, a DAO is uh, sort of a blockchain native organization and its rules are dictated by smart contracts. Um, some, some folks might say that a true DAO has no actual people. It's entirely automated, um, but Essentially, it's it's a decentralized group of contributors, and the rules of the organization are dictated by smart contracts. Is anyone here a part of one? Yes, I'm 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 indirectly and indirectly part of, of a few DAOs. Yes. How how did you go about joining? How do you pick and, and get on it? That's a good question. Um, so, one of the DAOs I can talk about is called the Divine DAO, and um, you mentioned it in your article, uh, Matt. It's a it's a DAO that is you know, focused on the, the loot uh, ecosystem. So loot, you know, these bags of words and equipment that were, you know, that made everyone within the gaming industry go crazy for a few days in, in September. Um, I'm, I'm still, you know, in, into that stuff. I'm <laughs> clearly, uh, I don't know, still, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm behind or, or ahead. I don't know. Anyway, um, so the, the goal of the DAO is to, you know, further... Um, Law writing and, and bringing forward, you know, the ecosystem and, and creative efforts within the, the Lootverse. Um, and so the way I went about joining it was, so first, you know, I heard about it um, as, as being part of the, 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 the Loot ecosystem. Uh, they had a Discord, so I joined the Discord and there there were a few steps you had to take to be, you know, fully like a full member of the DAO where you know because in discord you have to take a bunch of steps um before you can have access to you know the general chat and then you know you get assigned a role and all of that stuff and so the first one was I had to introduce myself you know what projects had I built that I had that I was proud of um and also one fun question was if I had a magic wand what would I do with it like if I could change anything within the world what would I do with it Kind of, kind of fun, so I filled that in. And then um, I had to buy some tokens. So the divine tokens, I needed to, to have a wallet which held 800 divine tokens, which was, I think, about 80 bucks at the time. Um, and so I, you know, I, I, I purchased some divine tokens and I used a tool that, you know, allows through Discord to, like, me to verify that I own a certain wallet and then they knew that I had the amount of, you know, divine tokens that were necessary to join the DAO. And then I was part of the DAO and now I'm, I'm just in there. I'm, I'm, I'm not super active, I'm not gonna lie. <laughs> I wish I, I was more active, but uh, yeah, I'm in there. Is it always required a financial investment to join a DAO? I mean, Matt can also speak to this, but from what I've seen, um, usually people you know buy tokens to get access to a DAO, but it's really not necessary because um, you know quite often DAOs want people to or reward people for their efforts which means that if you do something that the DAO perceives as valuable you know they can they can reward you for that and I've, I've I'm part of other DAOs also within the Lootverse that have actually you know given 
um, ether to people who are retroactively after they've done you know things to bring the ecosystem forward um, without them having to necessarily own tokens to, to receive that. Yeah, I would agree with with uh, Nico's sentiments there. It's certainly easier to get involved if you have a financial stake, but it's not required. Um, you can contribute in a variety of ways. Um, sometimes a DAO will have, say, a bounty of some sort for work that needs to be done, whether it's um, art and illustration or coding or community management. Uh, there's a variety of ways to get involved. Um, there are other DAOs that have formed around airdropped tokens. Um, now, the way that those tokens are allocated may relate to previous financial transactions, but again, I don't think it's required. Oh, interesting. So do you think there are any existing businesses that would be easier to adopt this kind of organization? I think um, businesses that can be automated, it's kind of a cop-out answer, I guess, but um, those would be a good fit. Like anything that has hard and fast rules that can be put into a contract and sort of easily verified programmatically, um, I think that's a good fit for using a DAO um, within uh, gaming. And you know, maybe we'll get into this. Um, there are opportunities for DAOs around passionate communities. So this isn't necessarily a business application per se, but you know, one thing worth exploring is that DAOs don't necessarily have to be built around businesses. It could be built around a passionate player community, for example, or fans of a given IP, fans of a sports team. Uh, it, it really could be flexible in that regard. I think um, what's more important is having a community that is aligned around a specific goal or set of goals or set of ideologies. It, it could be a variety of things. Um, Matt's question for you. What are your thoughts of on, you know, because you said that DAO is basically essentially a group um, governed by smart contracts. However, like, and, and there it would make, like there you could say that a DAO only works for things that are on the blockchain because, you know, only things that are on the blockchain can, you know, easily interact with these smart contracts. What are your thoughts on DAOs who interact with, you know, non-blockchain things? Those could be physical things, but also, you know, the revenue stream of, you know, a gaming company that is, you know, that gets their revenue streams from ads, for example, which are non-blockchain related. What are your thoughts on that? Do you consider, like, could that be a DAO as well? Uh, I think it depends on how much of a purist you are around the definition. You know, I think many would argue that there are a lot of organizations right now that are call calling themselves DAOs that are really just kind of chat rooms with a token. Um, so, you know, it kind of depends how strict you want to be around the definition. Um, that said, the you know, product, quote unquote, doesn't necessarily have to be on chain. Um, the governance of the organization, I think, does, though. So, you know, in the example that you gave of an ads driven business, um, if you're still holding your governance votes on the chain and capturing the results of those and um, governing the inflows and outflows of the multi-sig uh, you know, treasury through um, blockchain-driven technologies. I think that that's sufficient, but this is just my opinion. Uh, there, are, there are others who may have different opinions. If it's decentralized and 
from my from what I understanding, it has a flat structure. How how does the organization make decisions? Um, could be a variety of ways. Um, could be strictly through democratic vote. You know, one token, one vote. There are of course problems with that. Um, there could be smaller working groups. So you kind of delegate certain functions, say community management or marketing or operations to different working groups. And these groups are given the autonomy and the authority to make decisions within their sort of realm of responsibility. Um, there could be sort of delegated um, representation in terms of voting. So you have a particular community member who uh, has a strong position or a strong opinion about a given direction that the organization should go in and community members give that person uh, the authority to kind of use their voting rights um, as this person is advocating for. It's, it's almost like a, a, a real world politician in a way. Um, so there's a variety of ways you can do it. And I don't think that a quote unquote best practice has emerged just yet. I'm starting to become interested in joining one. <laughs> you should. Just as an experiment, I highly recommend joining one because um, I think you know Matt alluded to it within his piece. It is that the chances of DAOs, you know, going away and being like a failed experiment are, are seem to me at least as very slim. And I think um, definitely within you know the internet, moving forward, we'll we'll see you know tons of experiments um, and and exciting stuff happening. And you know I think. Um, with blockchain tech in general, it's always worthwhile just to try it out, just to give it a try, see, see what's going on, because just doing it makes it so much more easily easy to understand. Because if you're looking from the outside, you, you're like, what is this voting? How does that voting work? And in reality, it's just literally a website. And you go and it's like a bunch of proposals and you just click, I like this, and then you, you sign with your wallet. Um, it's, 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 it all sounds more complex and harder than, than it actually ends up being as a, as a, as a user. If the voting can be tied to the number of tokens that you have, do you think it listens to all voices, including voices that may not have the, for example, if you have to purchase the tokens, if they don't have the financial means to buy a lot of tokens, that maybe their voice isn't as heard as other people? That's absolutely an issue worth exploring. Um, it's kind of like paying for power in a way. and. Um, that's absolutely problematic. Um, I think it's something that the DAOs need to solve for. There are ways that you can attempt to address that. Similar to different class shares in a traditional organization, you could have tokens with different sets of voting rights. Uh, you can also you know, take this into consideration when planning out the entire token allocation um, from the get-go. So you know, only a certain amount can be distributed to the community versus original contributors versus uh, ongoing contributors. There are different ways you can chop it up. Um, but I, I'd be curious to hear what what Nico and Florian think about this. I, it's not a, a problem that I've seen fully solved yet. I, I think uh, the hard thing with most things blockchain is to sort of um, de declutter what's actually val valuable as a, as a general action or as a general concept um versus all the investment noise that's going on because i i think because for so many people you know anything blockchain is just an investment um and as soon as as it's that 
it's kind of really hard to optimize any new idea for general good. <laughs> um, so I think it's really hard to kind of make a call on these data sets that's not been really been solved because in so many cases, these really amazing concepts are kind of muddled with the fact that you somehow have to satisfy people's actual financial investment. Um, and I, I think one of the key things for me has always been super interesting, you know, bef before even the, the blockchain hype kind of came about, it was like um, alternate forms of governance, you know, like liquid democracy and all that kind of stuff, which now seems a lot more in reach. But obviously it can't really work <laughs> if you mix that with investments because you sort of start replicating potentially in a worse form, the problems we already have in our real-life democracies. But I, I think it's really, really cool um, for any system where there is no financial investment, or at least the investment is sort of spread out in a sort of basic income kind of way that if you're part of it, you kind of keep getting tokens um, that you can do stuff with. So at least it's it's sort of based on like, you know, time spent or other merits you might have brought rather than the, the money you've brought in. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think what I've seen now, and, and I've, I've heard some people talk about this, um, I, I, I think this is, it's a key point, right? Uh, how do we avoid you know, just one whale swooping in, buying half of the token supply and just, you know, putting their will on whatever is being decided? Um, a few solutions are quadratic voting, which basically reduces, you know, your voting power, the, the bigger it is, it is, if that makes sense. So if, you know, I have 10 shares and 10 people have one share, then, you know, those would not be equal. The 10 individual people that have one share each would have, you know, a larger vote than me with my 10 shares. Um, that's one example. Um, and another example, which I think um, I haven't seen a lot in practice of, but I, I think a lot of people are thinking and, and perhaps even working on this is um, either non-transferable tokens, um, so tokens that you can't sell, um, where, you know, you as a contributor, you receive a number of tokens, but you can't sell them. Um, and so you can't buy them. And, and, and in that way, you know, have more voting rights than you, you would have otherwise, um, or even NFTs, which would then also be non-transferable, but, um, so NFTs that you, so basically by contributing to the DAO, you accrue voting power. So the more you are active within the community, the more your vote, you know, gains weight in a sense. Um, so these, I mean, th this essence can be done through NFTs or non-transferable tokens where, you know, every time you do something, you get more tokens, but you just can't sell them. Um, but these are kind of solutions I think some some people are working on, um, thinking about, um, and likely I think will at some point, you know, be implemented somewhere successfully. I think it's quite funny um, because this is literally also how you balance long-term games <laughs> to cut down wait, that's our second topic. <laughs> I, I know. I'm just like, I'm just saying that it kind of like, it, it sort of needs these slots in there because you do the similar things where you go like, oh, if someone grows too powerful, while they have the, you know, like an, a multiples of a starter person, what, you know, whether it's money or troops, whatever, they kind of get, get like worse in relation so that you kind of like brought kind of bit down again. So there's like a band within which you can exist in, in a level of fairness. So I think, uh, you know, getting DAOs right is probably actually not that different from actually, you know, getting games right, where everything needs to feel fair and power needs to be distributed in a way that makes people happy. Um, so what do you think needs to happen before DAOs can become more mainstream? Uh, I think there's probably a, a few things. Uh, one is uh, onboarding and getting new contributors up to speed. This is a problem that I've seen uh, in my research and, and sort of following the space is that plenty of people are interested in DAOs and, and want to get involved, but I don't think maybe others will disagree with me. I don't think Discord is the best way to do it. Um, Discord isn't really 
built for people to <laughs> ramp up quickly and learn a bunch of information about what's going on in a DAO. You know, many of these DAOs have all these different working groups and they have a number of initiatives they're working on. Proposals are being tossed around left and right. And how do you ingest all of that information as a newcomer? Uh, I think that's that's a difficult problem to solve, certainly through Discord. Um, so that would be one issue that I would uh, raise. Uh, another is proving long-term viability. Like we have seen some DAOs that made a splash uh, in terms of like you know, news headlines. For example, you may have heard about the Constitution DAO that tried to buy a copy of the U.S. Constitution and ultimately did not succeed. They were outbid. Now they made a lot of noise and you could call that successful in a way, but then they had to figure out how do we return the funds to our contributors? And then there's gas fees associated with that. And, you know, what do we do next? Like our, our sort of reason for being failed. So what do we do next? So um, it's great to have headlines, but I think the general public, the crypto skeptical public will want to see real successes um, before fully adopting something like this. Mm -hmm. And I think, you know, these will go hand in hand moving forward. I feel like, you know, tooling is going to be essential for to make to make things smooth where you have one platform where you can both communicate, get up to speed, you know, proof contributions, vote on proposals. Um, one of the problems we're seeing today is how few people actually vote on, on stuff, right? Um, and that's just because like, if you have let's say 10 Uniswap tokens sitting somewhere in your wallet because you traded a bit on Uniswap. Um, of course, like if you only have 10, you're, you're not going to like keep, stay up to date with whatever's happening in, in the protocol within the DAO and you're not going to vote on that um, unless there might be like one tool where you can just connect your wallet and it's just going to tell you, okay, for all of the tokens and NFTs that you have, um, you're actually a part of these, 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 and these DAOs. And currently you have these many proposals pending. So, you know, if you conveniently click here, you can go there and, and vote on that. Um, actually, I met someone last week who's part of the Snapshot team, who is probably like one of the main, you know, uh, voting mechanisms for DAOs right now. So maybe I should tell him this. <laughs> uh, but I guess, I mean, yeah, I think tooling will lead to, you know, more efficient DAOs will lead to, you know, one big success will lead to other, will lead to external parties looking at this and saying, hmm, this might be, make sense and be interesting for us too. Mm. Um, last question before uh, moving on to the next topic. I was, when you were describing how, if someone contributes to the DAO that they might get more voting rights. From a gaming perspective, this is making me think about how when players, when a game has a veteran player and they want to maintain the game similar to how it was when they started, similar to the journey that they had to take to get to the position where they're in in terms of their progression. And at least myself, I have experienced this when we're proposing making changes to the, the onboarding of new players, for example that the veteran players are against it because it's going against, it's making it easier for people that come after them. So I was thinking, do you think, do you think DAOs could have that situation where someone doesn't, someone votes against it because they don't want it to change it to their experience? I mean, it's a good question. And my initial thoughts would be, and I, I, I would like to have Florian's uh, thoughts here as well. But for me, I feel like the difference between a DAO and a game might be that, I mean, in the end, in the game, the goal is to have fun. And the way you have fun might be different for person A who has been playing the game for a thousand hours and person B who is just starting the game. 
but within a DAO, I feel like there's usually one objective. And I think the objectives are more aligned. Let's put it that way. And especially, I guess, within PvP games, you know, the objective might be zero sum where, you know, <laughs> if I'm winning and you're losing, I'm having more fun, you're having less fun. And, you know, if you win, I lose, I have, you have more fun, I have less fun. Uh, but within DAOs, I guess it's more positive sum. And so you might run into fewer of these problems. But Florin, feel free to, <laughs> to disagree. Um, so just to so understand your question, right? are you sort of suggesting that um, would be would be DAOs a, a good way to make decisions about how to structure your life management of players? And Yes, to bring in new features, to redesign the FTUI, for example. Well, in a, in a weird way, <laughs> we, we kind of have a situation like that in free-to-play if you have a very whale-heavy game, right? Where... Um, if we if we talk in DAOs where you can financially and where you can buy power, as 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 Matt put it, um, you know if you know say Game of War, you know had this problem that you know you have a bunch of whales and they basically dictate what what needs to happen because they they are the main source of income. They've basically bought all the power, even if there's no tokens involved. So um, I think as soon as the money gets involved, it's really tricky. And then let's just say you made it more equal. The problem that you get is that you know. Um, old players might be outvoted in what they want um, and then leave. <laughs> so it's kind of, you know, as much as I love the idea, I find on overall putting democracy on game design or game product decisions has not worked out well. It's a bit of a schizophrenic thing where you always want to listen to your players. If you don't listen to your players, you make worse games and you make them unhappy. Players are really good at spotting problems and issues, they're not very good at finding solutions. Um, and sure, you can always find gold, but on average, that's kind of how it is. So I find this kind of like down structure, I would rather use it for players to organize amongst themselves. So where there, where I as a stake, as a company have no stake, um, or it's the core of the game in which it's part of the rule set, right? Where you, you would say you could box a DAO in and you just automatically have this group kind of uh, guild-like structure where you form a village, or it could be something more abstract, like a combat robot, right? Well, because it's a set of rules that we all influence and maybe together we form this bigger entity that then fights other people kind of thing. Um, but but it's contained within other humans. So if something happens that they don't like, they don't blame you as a developer, they, they, they can blame each other, which sounds like a cop But what I mean by this is like, you really don't want to get a situation where you give players a voice that they can tangibly grasp in a way, which you can on, on, on blockchain tokens, and then not listen to that voice. It's a very different conversation when you're on the forum and they're like, hey, what about this? And you're like, yeah, maybe. Um, but if they go like, hey, but we've got, I've got things and these things are there to make you do stuff, then it gets really tricky. Uh, and just to echo Florian's point, like I totally agree, by the way. Um, you may not even have the option of not listening to the players given that it's dictated by smart contracts. So if the vote is in, that's the vote, and that's what's going to happen based on the code. It, you cannot change it. Um, so that's certainly dangerous from a you know game developer perspective. And I get into this a little bit in the piece. Um, I think game developer DAOs are certainly more challenging than other types of DAOs that might be involved in the games industry, and they raise a lot of red flags for folks who work in the games industry. Um, for many of the reasons that Florian just outlined. Matt, 
are you um, perhaps I, I heard the story about old school RuneScape, where you know developers were working on something super major, and then in, and they were like they were working on it for months. They proposed it, and then you know the the players actually just did, didn't vote on it or, or didn't want it to, in, inside the game. Um, I guess like that that's one of the you know potential downfalls of of, of these things as well, where you know. Gamers actually don't know what would make their game better or not. Absolutely, <laughs> um, it's a, it's um, it's a, it's a tricky problem, no doubt about it. Um, you want to listen to the players, but the players may not have the complete picture into what's happening. Um, you know, as you just pointed out, there are other considerations, right? There's how long does it take to build from a developer standpoint? What is the engineering lift to create a new feature? How does that affect the balancing of the economy or the balancing of the game design? Um, and, you know, how long will it take us to make this? There, there are all sorts of considerations from an operational standpoint that perhaps players don't have a full uh, view of when they're making their vote, or perhaps they do. You know, DAOs in theory should be quite transparent, but uh, going back to our earlier point, maybe they just don't have the time or bandwidth to like consider the ramifications. It's just like, should we make this sword more powerful or not? Sure, why not? Like without reading the documents. So there's all sorts of um, problems there that, that could definitely arise by handing over that sort of voting power. And so the next step is as a developer, if you really want to adopt a DAO structure for your game development organization, you need to really think through carefully, what are you comfortable relinquishing control of to the community? And what are you not comfortable relinquishing control of? And what are the long-term ramifications of doing so? Interesting. Very interesting. Did uh, anyone prepare a bold prediction on downs? I can I can tell you mine. It's 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 actually it's not a bold prediction. I mean, I've done those. I can make a bold prediction about downs, but actually, so when I was reading the piece by Matt, I got excited by an idea that I had. So basically, imagine a an on-chain mile. So a mile, a mile is a massive interactive live event, right? Um, there are some some TV shows. Um, so and and so so on chain mile and the participants are governed by DAOs, and so basically you know everyone can see what's happening. You know all the information is is is, is open because it's it's on on chain, and you know then you know DAOs can you can actually like start you know, buying yourself into a DAO, see what's happened. You know you can buy into two DAOs because you want to you know band together against other participants. Um, I'm that idea excited me, and um, if you're building this, let me know because I, I want to talk to you. There you go. So it is a bit like giant combat robots then. I don't know what that is, but. I'm, I'm assuming yes. <laughs> no, as in that when you said like you can basically bind to DAO that represents an actor and you can make it do stuff uh -huh. by communal decision. Yes. So it's like, you know, like big robot fights where everyone like basically creates a robot that's governed by thousands of voices yes. and then trying to make them do stuff. But Florian, it's on chain. Come on, man. It's different. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean, it's cool. I love it. Yeah. <laughs> I'm just in my head. I'm just spinning the next idea of like, what could we do yeah, with this yeah, as yeah, a totally. game, you know? <laughs> totally. Yeah, I think that's fascinating. Um, I also have a bold prediction um, uh, with emphasis on bold. Um, we have seen um, DAOs spin up around um, goal, audacious goals around, say, buying back uh, a brand. There's a DAO that spun up around buying the Blockbuster brand, for example. Um, we've seen zombie brands like Radio Shack and Atari get into uh, DeFi and NFTs and things like that. My bold prediction is that a group of Gamers, a gaming community, will form a DAO to buy a dead gaming IP and revive it. Um, 
So again, emphasis on bold, but if uh, if such a group exists out there, my vote is for F0, but I'm sure there's some other good ones out there. <laughs> Keep an eye out. Hey, thank you. So to the listener, if you're interested in reading all of the details, you can find Matt's full article on Navex website. So we will move on to the second topic, which is to design long-living endgames. Um, so live game developers have to develop games that can sustain long-term player lifetime value. And the problem is, how can you design an endgame that can stay around for a long period of time and keep in- engaging players who, who have been there from the start? So Florian, could you walk us through how do you do this? Yeah, so usually... Um Content is one of the key determinators for longevity, right? If you make any game, people always want more content because um, in the end, everyone's a content tourist. Um, and by content, I don't necessarily mean it's just like new models and new art, which is also super important, but it can just be new, interesting ways of play um, or new type of player or new type of challenge. Um, and one of the problems you have is that what very often happens still in, in, in games is that people design a great game and it's fantastic for a month, but they've not really designed longevity in it. And when you just start designing a game, one of the first things you should be doing is ask yourself the questions like, hey, what does what does the endless version of this actually look like? Um, me- meaning, you know, if, if I had to play this game for 500 years, what would I do? Um, and where does the content come from? Um, and content needs to be cheap because the problem you have in every game, you have an initial golden cohort, which you know is your best players and you get the most hype and you get all the attention on you, that then declines. Um, and you know you start making content, end game content, so for the top level players, who are your biggest fans, for less and less people, right? Um, and then what happens is that it actually becomes a rather bad um, return of investment when you do these things. So. Any new con- any, any content you design that makes it endless um, needs to be cheap and needs to be accessible to all players, which is actually rather tricky. Um, so meaning that someone who comes in fresh to the game gets the same or similar access to new content uh, as established players, so you give the good things to everybody, not just you know you, the, the far tail end of people. And generally, there's like two best ways to do this. One is uh, PvP. Um, because players then create the content amongst themselves. So you don't, you actually need to make less stuff. And the other is what, what I call a <laughs> extreme eventification. So um, generally, I, I kind of advise studios to, to think the least linearly possible and um, kind of try to make everything as much as they can an event that is siloed on its own. So that means that anyone who's been here long-term, but also anyone who's been here just come in here, can basically enjoy the same content or similar content uh, for, for the same amount of your work. When when you're saying about designing content that can be played by all players, regardless of how far they're into their, their progression. So I've experienced that there will be um, there will be a separation of power. So someone who started is not very powerful, and then someone's been around for, I don't know, three, three years. They're at such a high power level. How, how can you design content that's accessible to the two groups? And that depends a bit on your game, right? If it's a skill game, that's your cop-out, right? <laughs> um, because, you know, it, you can always find new challenges that your established players haven't done that are based on skill, and they might perform a bit better, but your new players can kind of pick it up. So particularly speaking of like mobile or, or, or long-running games, usually there's a lot of stats involved. 
And the, the way I like to, to uh, solve these issues is by creating events that from a developer side require the same amount of work, but from a user side, they feel like different things. So as an example, um, you know, you make a car game and it's a racing game. Obviously, your advanced players have all the F1 cars and the super fast, you know, hyper cars. And, you know, your other guys, they come in with a, with a Golf <laughs> or, you know, with, a, um, with some sort of muscle car or whatever. To kind of go like, hey, there's actually a racing event in, on, but it's a cl- sort of a class-based event. And it doesn't actually matter which vertical you compete on. So you can compete in the in hypercar one, but you can also compete in the, you know, in the, I don't know, shitty German cars 2000 one. Um, and, and for all intents and purposes, you only make this event once, but to the users, it feels like, oh, I'm, you know, oh, maybe I want to actually race my old shitty cars against some noobs or, you know, and, and if you're a noob, you can go like, oh, I only have this golf, but you know, it's actually valid in this event. Like I don't, I don't feel excluded and I can actually win something that means something to me, even if I can't compete on like the, the hypercar level. Um, but, but from a dev perspective, that's a really, really kind of frugal and fun way, um, to create content that works for all players. Um, Florian, just curious, when you think about a game that has designed a great long-living endgame, what game comes to mind for you? <laughs> well, I mean, there are, there are a lot of them, um, but I, you know, being a systems kind of guy, I, I prefer some that have solved the issue systemically, right? If you say, if you go to like World of Warcraft, which has a great endgame, except for it's just content, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> so if you can afford the content threat mill, it's amazing. Um, but when I look to like, you know, like really good, good games that have solved the end, end game really well, um, I would say that most of the sort of PvP based mobile games have done really well because that is just kind of endless. Um, some of the racing games come to mind, um, you know, like Game of War and all these games come to mind, um, because they just, they don't really end. Um, I mean, to give you an example, there's browser games out there and I think the browser game market is still worth Two billion or something silly. Um, people are still playing these. They're playing these PvP, uh, stats-driven, systemic, long-term strategy games still. And I mean, we're probably talking like what, like fifteen years now or something. Um, mm-hmm. And then these are usually the ones that that are admirable for how they've solved these, uh, you know, systemic content creation. If there were a studio out there, I say they don't have a PvP game, and their solution to this problem that they were considering is to funnel new players into the end game faster and be more generous in the rewards so that they can increase their power faster. What do you think about that? Do you think that's a a feasible, good solution? Um, It's probably not the only solution, but it's a solution, right? It depends how long that journey is before they can compete with everyone else. And yeah, maybe sometimes you get people who are like, oh, but I didn't get, you know, a free sniper rifle when I started. But these are complaints that really don't matter because in the end they want to play with other people, right? So they don't, they don't really mind like liquidity trumps the fact that they have an easier ride for sure. And most players, even if they complain, they get it. I would just add that um, sometimes getting players to the end game faster is probably not a good idea. It depends what your content treadmill is like and um, how, how fast you're prepared to run on that treadmill. Um, Sometimes you don't want players to consume all of that content super quickly and you want them to pace themselves going through it. That's why things like gotcha exist, for example, uh, in like cosmetic based economies. Um, so it's not always the solution. Yeah. I mean, there's also a lot of games companies are not necessarily above doing the inverse where, um, 
I'm, I'm not going to name names here, but <laughs> um, you know that that some say match three games, for example, they make new content when it comes out really hard, um, and it's not very visible that it's a fact. And then after a while, when more people have caught up, they kind of make it a bit easier because it now becomes part of normal content. So sometimes dynamic difficulty or like dynamic changes to the elder player's game actually also works because these people are the most hardcore. They're going to bite through everything. So you might as well make it super hard. And when the rest arrives, you're like, you just dumb it down. Interesting. So what do you think uh, elder players look for in the game? What what keeps it fun for them? I mean, again, that, that depends vastly on the game. And as I think it was Nico or Matt that mentioned it, like, you know, people find different fun in different um in, in different ways. You know, some people enjoy just hammering away at progressing a level. Some people really want to just hang with their friends and some, you know, like everyone wants something else. So I, th- I think that's a really hard question to answer, but I think what they all want is, you know, a, a game that keeps them engaged. I know it sounds like a, a very general thing to say, but like um, knowing what kind of personality types your players are, right? I mean, there's entire, you know, games that are built on griefers, right? I mean, again, just bringing this up by the moment is like Game of War is like one of these or was one of these um, games where like it's just mostly built on just shitting on other people <laughs> um, and and like one-upping other people. Uh, and that's what, what people enjoy. Um, you know, they enjoy this hardcore competitive environment um, where it's do or die. And some people hate it. You know, some people, they just want to sit there and they want to match their candies. They don't want to be bothered. They want to zone out of life and that's what they love. What are you, Florian? <laughs> well i'm a weird animal because i'm a games designer so i play all the things um so i play everything from the super zenny kind of um you know little cutesy island games to like hardcore shooters because in the end if you want to make games for people you need to understand all their emotional drivers right Mm -hmm. how about you matt um i think i'm more towards the competitive pvp side uh although i have a bit of the number go up rpg motivation as well so it depends those are my two mm. kind of areas that i tend to delve into mm-hmm. are you maria i like to feel powerful without having to go against other players and be able to use fun emotes very important yeah and you Nico? yeah i'm unhealthily competitive so um <laughs> for me i just want to i just want to win that's it man i'm telling you the 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 feeling I get when I win like a solo Warzone match is it's like doesn't get doesn't get much better basically it's <laughs> terrible. Are you, are you are you like a, a happy winner or a sad winner? Because I, f- I find there's like people who are like really competitive when they win they're like oh this is really awesome I won and then they want to like you know throw a party and like invite everyone else or are you more to kind of like yeah I showed you guys. <laughs> That's a good question. I don't have any media that I think it's a bit of both. But what I do have like okay. I cannot play like a game like that after dinner because otherwise I can't sleep until 1, 1, 1 a.m. No chance. It's it's terrible. So um, yeah, it's just the adrenaline rush. Is, that, that's, I guess, what I'm looking for. How how often do you win? I, I, I was pretty good. I mean, I, I haven't played for a year almost now, um, which is why I'm, I'm suddenly, you know, productive in life. Um, <laughs> and before that, I, I was, I was like, I was getting like 15 plus percent win rates on, on, on solo uh, Warzone games. So I was like doing everything possible, like all the cheese strats. That was what I, what I was doing. Um, so just one last question before uh, going to the last the last topic. Um, Florian, do you have any way to test how how good the design is for its endless endgame? As a product manager, I find that very hard. 
<laughs> well, I mean, if you already have players, obviously that helps because uh, you can directly look at uh, what what they like, what they don't like, and invite them to like. I mean, we've just literally taken people to kind of go like, "Hey, do you want to like test the prototype?" and People are often like, yeah, this is really cool. Um, so that's helpful. Um, if you don't have it yet and you're still first setting up out, out first setting out to do a game, um I actually am a big fan of simulations. So um which often most of the time people don't really have the time or want to allocate studio resources to. But if you can grab a coder or you can do it yourself, um and actually try to simulate, you know, how is the matchmaking is gonna go for for that like end game or like you know um, whether your concepts on a variable uh, gacha that is seasonal so it wipes every month or something whether these things actually create the kind of populations and effects that you want then this is really 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 great um, because Excel a lot of times just doesn't cut it for this kind of stuff. Hundred percent endorse Florian's suggestion around simulation. There are tools that are built to do this. Uh, Machinations is one. It's built on like Monte Carlo simulation, um, which is, is really powerful and, and definitely recommend. It is time consuming. As Florian pointed out, you need to kind of have everything mapped out ahead of time. Uh, and then there's the risk of kind of model error. So like, you know, one tiny variable changes a little bit early in the model and it leads to wildly different results in the end game, which is ultimately what we're trying to simulate. So there is risk to that. But I, I definitely endorse the the suggestion to use simulation tools. If someone wanted to go about to learn to use machinations, do you have any suggestions on how they could do that? Uh, I haven't learned it myself. It's uh, it seems seems like this is a bit of a learning curve. But uh, you know, I don't mean to make this a, a plug for the the company, but they have all sorts of like tutorials and stuff on YouTube and on their website. Um, it's definitely interesting. There are other tools, by the way, like Oracle makes a, a piece of software called Crystal Ball that does Monte Carlo simulation. It's a little bit more heavy duty and not gaming specific, but there are other ways to go about it. Yeah, machinations is actually great. I just want to second that. And again, it's not a plug for the company, but like, um, you know, they were super useful before they went commercial. Um, and uh, they now become really helpful in actually onboarding people. So I, th- I think um, if you're really interested in this, I think you just all you have to do is write around those guys and they will probably run running through it personally. <laughs> um, it's a really great tool. And I think it's actually easier, but weirdly enough, easier than like using Excel or something for a lot of people who think visually. Because you like you literally put like blobs down the screen. You kind of go like, oh, this dot moves from here to here because of this rule. And it's much easier to follow. So I use machinations to explain high-level models to the people who don't understand economy and game design. Uh, because I, I can just go like, cool, and this moves from here to here, and this happens, why? Because that happens. And it's really, really good for like someone who's in, in, you know, in, in business or someone else, but they don't really understand how these systems work because they're very visual. And then uh, if you work at Machinations and you want to sponsor us, you can uh, reach out to me. <laughs> <laughs> well, talking about FPS, uh, that, that ties into the last topic, uh, Sony's acquisition of Bungie. Um, I w- I promised to not show my hype because my pandemic lockdowns were spent playing Destiny 2. So does anyone have any thoughts on the deal? Uh, I can start. Uh, I must admit that I am not a Destiny player, but I do know some folks who work at Bungie and I think it's uh, I think it's interesting. You know, one of the kind of knee-jerk reactions was like, oh, this was in response to Microsoft and Activision. I think that's actually not true. I mean, there is certainly like a competitive response aspect to it, but you know, a three, what was it? $3.6 billion deal that doesn't come together in two weeks. You know, they've been working on this for a little while, I would assume. And uh, games industry consolidation generally has been happening for the last two, three years at a pretty rapid pace. Um, so 
uh, that was my sort of first uh, reaction was it's it's definitely interesting. Sony needed to do something, I think. Um, and it will be we'll be curious to see how they choose to move forward. Um, they very publicly uh, talked about the desire to remain cross-platform and not make things exclusive. And uh, I'll be interested to see how that plays out and how successful that is, uh, given that Microsoft is taking a decidedly different approach. Nico? Don't love a lot of, lot of thoughts here. I've never played Destiny. Um, I was thinking, you know, what the rationale here could be, but uh, I, I don't know myself. Uh, so can't give give too many insights there. But Florian, he knows. He understands. Um, <laughs> do I? Um, I mean, like, I have, I have two thoughts on this. One is, um, so I, I actually think, and I don't know, this is, I don't have data to back this up, but this is my opinion. Um, I think it probably doesn't matter to people what kind of shooter, for example, they play, as long as they have a good shooter to play. Um, you know, so whether they play COD or Battlefield or Destiny doesn't fundamentally matter as long as they have a fun shooter to play and meet their friends. So acquiring something that that ticks that box, which I think Sony is a bit underrepresented on, I think, um, is probably a good idea if you want to just make sure that you have a, a foot in, in every door. Um, and the other one is that, so Bungie has always been making noise about how they want to not just do video games. Um, and so I was kind of thinking, now this is a very stretch, maybe this fits in the bold prediction bucket, but, um, you know, I, a while ago, one of my predictions on Navic was actually on, on Metacast was that, um, I think entertainment will move, brands will move games first for where it's applicable. So I'm thinking, you know, that, you know, this, if you look at the success that Arcane had, for example, you know, the spinning, spinning off Riot, um, I think maybe there is something there as well because Sony is more than just a games machine. Um, and I I think there is potential to maybe do a lot more um, with, you know, an established studio that has an established IP and, and the creative horsepower and the in-house skills to maybe spin out more than just um, another shooter game. But but this is, again, this is highly speculative. It's an interesting point. They do have a music division, a film division, animation division, Sony does. Um, so, you know, potentially, uh, they could, they could leverage the IP in different interesting ways. Um, on the flip side of that, uh, my understanding, and I don't have any inside information here, this is just sort of word on the street is that, um, Sony can be quite siloed within those different divisions. So bringing those, uh, groups together to cooperate on a initiative like that may be a challenge for them. I don't know, but, um, it's an interesting thought. Um, maybe, maybe they'll go that sort of transmedia route with, with Bungie IPs. I don't know. I'm only saying this because Bungie has been making noise about wanting to do oh, this gosh, in the past. If so. Bungie puts mm-hmm. out a series about Destiny, I will be honored. Please, if you're listening, please do this. <laughs> <laughs> how? Um, just a question. How successful was Destiny 2? Does anyone know? Maria enjoyed it, but apart from that... <laughs> well... <laughs> I don't know how successful it was. Personally, as a player, if you want to engage with all of the content, including the expansion and then the season pass, because some of the content is locked behind having the season pass, I think I was spending on average £110 a month. And that's, sorry, not a month, gosh, a year. £110 a year. And then they have microtransactions if you want to buy some cool cosmetics. I I was scrolling through... um, Bungie's careers, and I saw that they were hiring for an unannounced game and incubator roles, 
that whose description was focused on quick prototyping and experimentation. So that led me to to think, are they going to release two new IPs? Might they release one new IP and Destiny 3? I don't know. Does anyone have any theories of what they could be cooking? Uh, my, my guess, based on no information, is that they're going to stick within shooters. I think shooter is... Uh, you know, first of all, it's like a core competency of them, right? They've they've proven success in that genre, and it's much easier to build a new game in the same genre than it is to go off and do something entirely new. Um, and another point there is that it's a it's a big genre that is continuing to evolve. And uh, you know, one example of that would be games like uh, Tarkov um, that are more like extraction shooters. Like there are there are new twists on the genre that have um, proven successful both commercially and from like a streaming and social perspective. And um, I think that might be a, an interesting space to explore, not necessarily that, you know, Tarkov model specifically, but new twists on the shooter genre. Um, I think, you know, the, there is a desire for you know, competitive shooters. And um, I think this year has the, the releases from this year have been a little bit underwhelming so to speak, for fans of the genre um, from multiple IPs. Uh, I will stay away from talking about my current employer, but I think Call of Duty was not received well this year. Um, uh, so yeah, there's opportunity there, I guess is what I'm saying. I'm really curious, Nico, you as like an investor, <laughs> um, would you actually um, pay a highest price tag for a company where maybe you had some insights into what happens in the prototype department, as I said, for example, you know, finding the next sort of, um, you know, what Fortnite did or, or like play, player battlegrounds did, like taking a new element of shooter and then hyping it up to be the new thing. If they had something like that, would that justify such a price tag? Can you repeat the question? I, I mean, if if you so um, if if you found in their laboratory when you kind of like exploring first, you know whether they're worth the acquisition target, and they had prototypes cooking, not not fully fledged games yet, that had that promise of being the next type of shooter experience that could that could like boom exp equally, would would that justify such a price tag? I think it's at least from my perspective, it's very hard to assess what's going to be the next big thing. I think if you had you know if you had asked the people in at Epic, you know. Uh, I mean, they they didn't even start Fortnite as the current like the battle royale blowout mode that it like or success that it was, right? Um, and so I think, at least from my perspective, um, I don't think you know it, a new idea will merit a very high valuation targets. I think you know in in house expertise um, and in existing player base are usually more valuable, um, except for, of course if you have like a and then th that I'm talking about the venture side. I mean, we're talking way smaller tickets than, you know, from a portfolio perspective, it might make sense to take, to make a smaller bet on, you know, an unproven concept that sounds exciting. Um, that's, that's a different, different story. Yeah. I hope they keep doing shooters. I think personally, um, I like the sci-fi fantasy setting and I don't, I don't, as a player, I don't really like the realism of, for example, Call of Duty. So I like to shoot, you know, electricity through the air and whatnot. So yeah, <laughs> hopefully they keep expanding that genre because I think there is definitely an audience there. And I, I feel that the industry has come full circle because Sony acquired the developer of the original Halo 
who was previously owned by both Microsoft and Activision. I don't know. There's some there's a nice feeling that it gives me to to see this this acquisition. Does does anyone have any predictions on what could be the next headline? My uh my, my hunch is that it will be in the mobile space. Um I you know, people have talked about say EA or um Ubisoft. Um I could maybe see Ubisoft. I am not certain about EA, um, just given their size as a company relative to the potential acquirers. Um, I think that there's also mm, like, I guess, geopolitical considerations with some of these companies. Like it may be harder to uh, acquire, say, a Japanese game developer. Um, or uh, on the flip side, it may be harder for a Chinese publisher like a Tencent to come in and acquire an American publisher. Uh, so I know I'm not being very specific here, but my my prediction would be be a you know a, a publisher looking to bolster their mobile repertoire. And there's there's companies out there like uh, we just saw Zynga get acquired. Um, Playtica might be another one. Um, probably some others I'm I'm forgetting right now. If you just say all of the names, you'll probably get one right over the next year. Yeah, one that, of them. That's my right. that's my prediction here. <laughs> Florian, do you have any? Uh, do you have any thoughts? Uh, well, they basically run across very similar lines as, as Matt. Um, I uh, and, and I mean, like, there's, there's a lot of buzz around this in the industry right now, and I've people thrown around some really wild ideas. <laughs> um, I, I don't know. I'm just sitting tight, and I uh, I'll just see what happens. <laughs> <laughs> I've also had the impression that everyone everyone is really excited about these acquisitions, but I've personally at least. I haven't really figured out how I feel about those, whether I feel these will lead to better games. Because um, in the end, like, that's like what I, what I care about, you know, as, as a gamer. Just don't know how to, how to feel. It's a bit of a cyclical uh, situation though, right? Like mm -hmm. industry, not just gaming, but industries are always kind of consolidating and then expanding again. So you could, you could reasonably argue that we're seeing a lot of consolidation in quote unquote traditional uh, game publishers and game developers and that say like, Web3 gaming will come in and expand mm -hmm. the industry and uh, disrupt things in a different way. Um, and then, you know, starts again. Then they start to You're get right. acquired and we consolidate again, expand again. Who knows, maybe a DAO will buy a game company. Maybe. <laughs> <laughs> okay, well, uh, Florian, Matt, thank you very much for, for being on. And thank you for our listeners for tuning in. And we hope that you enjoyed the episode. The Metacast is out and look forward to speaking to you again.